Welcome to The Virtual Shift, a show looking at the seismic changes happening in healthcare with virtual care at the epicenter. Join me and my guests as we look at key cultural and policy shifts impacting how providers, payers, and patients connect, as well as how care is being reimagined both for today and the future. Hello, and thanks for tuning in today. I'm your host, Tom Foley. You can learn more about this show by visiting the program on healthcarenowradio.com, and be sure to follow me on LinkedIn, Twitter, at FoleyTom and the hashtag, The Virtual Shift. Today, we have a great guest on, Jennifer Bright. She is the Chief Strategy and Engagement Officer at the Innovation and Value Initiative. Jennifer, welcome to the program. Tom, thanks for having me. It's nice to be here. Awesome. So uh, before we get into the discussion, uh, the reason um, for the audience's sake, the reason why we're having this discussion is uh, Jennifer is very involved in the, as stated, the Innovation and Value of the healthcare ecosystem. And she has some very uh, unique things that she's doing, and I want uh, to share that with the audience. Uh, So uh, with that, uh, Jennifer, tell us a little bit about your background. Sure. Tom, I started my journey uh, back when I was 18 years old, and I had two parents who had very aggressive cancers diagnosed within a year of each other. And as a teenager, frankly, I got a front row seat into what the healthcare system was like, not only the mechanics of it and treating illness, but also how patients and families are largely left to their own devices to navigate it. And that started my whole journey and interest in health policy writ large, and principally, how do we do better by patients and families, both in terms of their engagement, their education, their advocacy for themselves and their journey of healthcare, those are all things that are very um, near and dear to my heart, and they've guided my entire career, which has been focused on working in the patient advocacy world. I was a mental health, am still a mental health advocate, and all of the client and other work that I've done over the last 30 years has been focused in this area of how do we bring care that's relevant to patients and families to them? How do we make sure that they are engaged as active Uh, decision makers, and how do we empower them to make good decisions with their clinicians for the best outcomes? You and I share very similar backgrounds, and it is a compelling perspective of the healthcare system once you're either a patient and or a caregiver slash advocate for the patient. If uh, any member of the audience hasn't uh, had that experience, it is uh, eye-opening as to how a patient sees the healthcare system versus how a provider or health system might see the healthcare system. So, you know, my father, uh, I don't think we've had this conversation, but my father had diabetes and every complication to that with the inclusion of three different amputees, one leg, second leg, arm. Um, He had um, dialysis at home. Uh, It's just every complication uh, imaginable. And then my father-in-law had Parkinson's and my mother died of cancer as well. It's, it, it changes your whole perspective of life and the whole perspective of uh, n- there needs to be a better way. So uh, with that, uh, tell us a little bit more about uh, the Innovation and Value Initiative. Yeah, so the Innovation and Value Initiative is a nonprofit organization uh, working on research in the space of value assessment or health technology assessment. This is largely cost-effectiveness analysis, economic analyses of emerging uh, drug and other health interventions to determine not only what is clinically effective for patient communities, but also what is cost-effective. And 
it's a unique ecosystem. It's very research heavy. It has a lot of complicated math and formulas and modeling. So it's a very complex area. And because it's complicated, it's also very opaque, especially to the patient and family communities. And so I've been with the organization for five years, and I've really helped the organization think about how does it talk about its work in a relevant way to patient and families? And most importantly, how do we get patient communities involved in this work earlier in the cycle so that instead of decisions coming out of cost-effectiveness analysis that says drug A is and drug B are the same clinically, but one is cheaper than the other, and that results in a decision that may or may not match up with the real-world experience of a patient and family who, who have then to navigate the access issues, whether a drug is covered, how much do they pay out of pocket, all of those things. If those decisions are not made in a way that takes into consideration the real experiences of patients and families, what's important to them, whether they're even represented in the data, and we've seen a lot of this now with all the equity focus, that a lot of our clinical research is not representative of the patient populations that we are trying to make decisions about. And so we, IVI has been really focused on how do we bring patients into this equation earlier? How do we make sure that our methods and our processes of conducting economic analyses involve patient communities so that we make sure that the data is representative, that we make sure we're using methods that take into account that not all patient decision-making is uh, homogenous. It's a very complex area. And like I said, I've been with the organization five years, and I think we've made a lot of contributions in thinking about how to do this work. We've done work in rheumatoid arthritis. We're currently doing some work in major depressive disorder. And the organization, I said, you know, is a nonprofit, and we work to identify places where change is important, is possible, and then to operationalize how that change needs to look by developing open source tools like our modeling platforms and things like that to, to not just kind of pontificate to the, the community of research and health, econo health economists that are doing this work, but also to show how do we get from where we are right now to something better. Oh, yeah, it's very difficult for a patient uh, because right now they are positioned as just the consumer of all the different iterations that occur to bring options, if you will, to the consumer and, and let them choose, if you will, right? Or yes, the doctor does make the recommendation on script A versus script B, but you know, we all know that uh, the patients are becoming more and more empowered based on the information that's uh, provided through many alternative sources outside of just what the, the provider is saying. So you're, 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 the I, IV, uh, IVI is really trying to bring the uh, more of a patient advocate to bring their voice to the table and ultimately uh, be representative of what it is that the consumer market is actually looking for. Is that a fair uh, statement to make? Yeah, uh, let me put it in, like, speak specifically to one of the projects that we're currently working on in the area of health equity. There is a lot going on in the healthcare world relating to equity, equity in how do we collect clinical trial data, for example? How do we involve 
people of color in research? How do we reach communities that are not typically represented in research? So there's so such a wealth of action happening. But one area that we have been really focused on is that in this sphere of doing cost effectiveness analysis or health technology assessment, we don't do a good job of including patient perspectives at the beginning. And so this is a very clear cut example of what IVI's work is trying to do is to bring forward examples of why is that important to make sure that you understand the rheumatoid arthritis community, its diversity, what are the things that patients with rheumatoid arthritis think are important? Are we measuring those? The answer is no, in a lot of cases. If we're not measuring that, what does that imply for the data we're using to make comparisons between different treatment options for that population? And what are the decisions that you can and can't make with this? So there's a lot of discussion right now about value, value-based contracting, value-based purchasing, value-based reimbursement, value-based care, value-based assessment. Our summation is that you cannot talk about value if you do not have a partnership with the patient communities to which your decision-making is relevant at the beginning and sustained all the way through. And in many cases, that does not exist. We do not see robust partnerships with payer communities and patient communities as much as we would like to. We do not see, we see some emerging work within the clinical care space where there's patient and family advisory committees and things like that. Those are steps in the right direction. But in the research community, this is not top of mind and it is not ingrained behavior. Researchers typically start with what is the question of interest, typically to a payer or a manufacturer. And from there is a cascade of missed opportunity to make those decisions and that research relevant to real people. And that is one of the principal areas that IVI is working to define what do we need to do at what time with patients so that we get better information, we get better insight, we get better data, we get better decisions. So that when we're talking about value-based care, we can honestly say that these interventions have value not just to the people who are paying for them, but to the people who are using and receiving that care. Yeah, I, I, you could break that down into many different uh, silos here, right? So there's, I, I would agree, uh, there's many missing uh, discussions about how you get the value. I think, uh, with all due respect, I think there's a lot of providers that would uh, that have challenges getting to value as well. It's not as if they don't want to go. It's a matter of you know, they're stuck in a fee-for-service hamster wheel. Uh, I hate to say it like that, but they're on that hamster wheel relative to, I need to generate revenue to keep my practice moving and to be able to allocate and slice a, a piece of the pie towards a risk-oriented program. And and how do I even in, invest in, and embrace those programs is the one side of the equation that not even, that impacts the patient. Uh, and impacts the uh, the payer to some degree of you know the desires of how where they want to go, but you know there's not a lot of tools for the for the provider. That's one aspect of it. The other aspect of it, it from a patient's perspective, you know, yes, we always talk about how we want to know more about that patient and how we model the correlation of what a pill 
is a, uh, a medical medical therapy is effective for. And sometimes we don't have enough information, even if we collected um, more information, but we don't have the genomics of that that patient. We l- we lose a lot of opportunities on both sides of that equation. Are those things that are top of mind to your efforts at IVI? Yeah, let me, because you asked about two things. I mean, you talked about providers, and I definitely think that clinicians are very much aligned and allied with the patients that they serve in terms of what they see being needed and the, uh, their ability to customize treatment choices for the patient sitting in front of them. I think that's a no-brainer for so many of them. But they're constrained by the, you know, field, the required fields in the electronic health record or the, the metrics by which they have to live up to to get that value-based reimbursement. Those things, those expectations for what we're measuring and what's measured in order to discern value-based reimbursement are not aligned with what patients would identify as most important to them. And that right there is the problem. So we have created this huge construct of care delivery and tracking and measurement that is artificially being sh- artificially being presented as patient-centered. And I would argue, this is me personally, as well as my hat at IBI, that's the shift in thinking that we have to get to. We need to be rethinking what is it, if we can say honestly that our data is not representative of real world populations, then we are automatically all starting from a Swiss cheese set of data to make these kinds of decisions. And I think it is an enormous challenge for the business side of healthcare to make a pivot to maybe we should invest in research that is more patient-centered so we understand who's missing from this picture and whether our delivery of care, whether it's virtual or the, you know, we lead with therapy versus a drug for mental health, whatever that shift needs to be, it, we need to know that it is aligned with the expectations and the needs of the patient communities that are going to be most served. And what, you know, for example, typically research in this space happens with Medicare data for value assessment. I hear all the time, like we use the Medicare data set to run the models. Well, how does that jive with Medicaid populations, which are, you know, often more disabled, they're younger, and they're disproportionately minorities and underrepresented in clinical research. So if we're using data sets that everybody thinks is easy from a research standpoint, but it completely mismatches the populations for the decisions we're trying to make for limited state budgets, for example, then we are by definition in a, on a hamster wheel, to use your analogy. Acquiring data for the sake of acquiring data, but not understanding the the breadth and depth of the data and how it supports the 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 greater good uh, of when all uh, need to be treated is is the point that you're making here, right? It's uh, we need we need a more robust data set as well. We need to collect different data uh, that we might not otherwise. And this is you know the, I uh, some might. I, I come from three different EHRs, so I have an EHR background, but I'm not a fan uh, any longer of the EHR being uh, that platform. I think it's a good data platform, but it's it's too onerous uh, for a physician to pivot on uh, on different conditions. And I don't think, to your point, uh, it's it serves the greater population. Yeah, so we need to uh, we, uh, you know we need to collect the data 
and certainly medical records are critical, uh, but uh, we need to take some uh, regulations off of the EHRs and allow them to be a little bit more innovative than what they might have been before, because that's that's half the problem as well, right? Our, Our EHR platforms are so heavily regulated and so focused on making sure they meet their certification needs versus the needs of the patients in which they serve or the patient of the providers in which use them it just um and sometimes uh our payers regardless of source uh, might uh, might not have the attention or understand the greater need of four different data sets uh to be able to uh to get there so any thoughts on that uh yeah well i think you know, in our most, we held a roundtable a couple of weeks ago about as part of our health equity initiative. And one of the big issues I talked about the representativeness of clinical data and other types of data for use in research about uh, health technology assessment. Big issues, uh, obviously, that are beyond IVI's scope to deal with. But the use, how we use the resources we already have, we have EHRs that are collecting mountains of data, but it's often not available for research purposes. Uh, we have, you know, big data repositories, but they're, they're, you know, pay to play or they're not available and you can't amalgamate a lot of research data into usable formats for research. This is a huge problem. So this interoperability and the ability of developing bigger data sets that are principally for research to help all of our knowledge level, you know, boat rise, is really important. I don't pretend to know how to solve that problem. It is a big one, but I keep hearing it in all my circles. IVI, I hear it in thinking about mental health. I hear it in the innovation space. We held a a roundtable about innovation and like, how do we think about the technology of the future? Not just drugs, but we have digital therapies coming out now. We don't have a good handle on how we define value of digital interventions. And I would say that if we don't come to agreement on a floor and a process by which we understand it from the patient position first, five, 10 years from now, we're going to be looking at a whole bunch of money that we wasted on digital therapies. And we're going to be having the same problem about who yeah. we, what do we pay for and for whom. And there will be winners and losers. And my frustration is that the winners always seem to be the businesses. And that it's not, it's pharmaceuticals, it's the device companies, it's the hospitals, it's the insurance organizations. And they will always find their equilibrium from a from a economic standpoint. But the people that are getting left on the side of the road are the patients and families. We have families w- with rare diseases, with kids that are being diagnosed at a rapid clip because we have all this new technology for genetic testing and biomarkers, but we don't have any treatments to offer them any kind of treatments, not just drugs, right. but respite therapy or any kind of uh, capacity to meet their needs. And that is a huge problem. And to me, it's the solution, it's not a simple one, but the place to start is by making sure that we're asking patients and families, what is the problem that you need solved today? When we met with rheumatoid arthritis patients, the number one thing that all rheumatoid arthritis arthritis patients uh, uh, experience over the course of their disease is fatigue. But we neither measure that, we don't measure the severity of it, we don't measure the things that impact it, and we certainly don't treat it. 
And that is a problem. That's just one example in a huge, I could come up with a laundry list of things we do not address. And the fact that we're all talking about social determinants of health, now food as medicine is a good example of how we need to start shifting our thinking. If we can solve more diabetes cases by making sure people are educated about how to cook nutritious food and they have access to it instead of like you said the other day, instead of having access to 50 types of beer that in your local market, you can get fresh vegetables. How many problems are we solving that don't require regulation or a pharmaceutical, uh, you know, non new drug application and regulatory oversight and all the rest. So it's really fundamentally shifting our thinking about what is the problem that we're trying to solve. And if we're not involving patients and families and answering that question, we've already made the mistake. So, you know, we, we uh, previously talked about access and engagement equals outcomes and equity, right? So that's the kind of the, an interesting formula in and of itself. And sometimes I don't believe that the healthcare market, because they're, they're so entrenched to some degree in the brick and mortar model, that what virtual care can do for them, because outcomes doesn't occur. I, uh, my audience is going to they're going to be repeat this with me. You know, uh, the average Medicare patient, five chronic conditions, they see nine different doctors. Uh, 50, they're in front of their doctors 15 hours in a given year. The key, the key to changing behaviors is understanding what happens in the 8,745 hours they're not in front of their doctor. That is really where wellness occurs, and that's where patients are making decisions, good or bad. Uh, and if you're not going to engage them in that time frame, then we're going we're, we're gonna to lose them uh, more so than what we've already lost. And as well, when we talk about access, there's a two-pronged need. I have access to care. Great. However, do I have access to a cure? And that's really where the comment came from another guest that I had interviewed uh, who was uh, talking about uh, the the urban communities often they go to the corner deli and they got they got you know sixty some flavors of beer but they don't have any apples or oranges and and lettuce or tomato for any semblance of a healthy diet but they got pretzels and potato chips and beer and that is not a good formula so there's an ecosystem here that everyone needs to change right and we need when we need to embrace that transformation. Uh, so everyone has not only access to care, but they ac- they have access to a quality cure, uh, and that might, uh, to your point, uh, med- uh, food is medicine. Thoughts? Uh, uh, we have uh, I believe uh, two minutes left. Any uh, any thoughts on that? <laughs> two minutes to solve you, you might have you might have three, but go ahead. Well, you know, I I think I said this the other day, but my equation is access plus equity equals outcomes and value. And by that, I mean everything you said. The access is about environment as much as it is about actual access to a practitioner or to healthcare. With our virtual uh, delivery models, we have a better opportunity to reach more people. Um, but the equity piece is the essential element of ensuring that happens to so make sure that there's no wrong door and make sure that all populations, irrespective of where they are, like physically in their journey and in the their environment, have the ability to get care when they need it. And so there's there's 
points of light, but I think we have a lot of things to uh, improve about this no wrong door thinking. Uh, there's a lot of a lot of roadblocks put up in front of patients of every stripe, and I have recent experience where for everything I know, trying to get the right care and the coordination out of the health system for someone that I love and who has a medical need is far too complicated and far too time consuming and onerous. And when the insurance companies are worried about what they have to pay out of pocket to cover that care, nobody is asking what the burden is on the family or the individual, the time spent on the phone, tracking the data, accessing five different portals, you know, coordinating with four different physicians. To your point, what happens outside the clinical visit and the clinical uh, is important and time consuming and costly to our society. And we have got to figure out how to bring those two things together and recognize that patient engagement isn't a tool, widget, checkbox, um, it is, it is a hands-on relationship building, trust building, you know, relationship. And if we don't invest that time intentionally, we're going to miss the mark. We'll have to leave it there. Great words. Uh, Jennifer Bright, Chief Strategy and Engagement Officer. You are a person to follow for sure. Uh, and I, you, can, you can find her on LinkedIn to start as well. The Innovation and Value Initiative uh, really doing some compelling work. They, too, are someone, uh, an organization that needs to be followed. And if anyone's interested in participating, reach out to Jennifer to uh, to get some more information. Again, she's available on uh, LinkedIn at uh, Jennifer Bright MHS. Jennifer, thank you very much. Very compelling stuff that you guys are doing. Uh, I look forward to having you on the program again sometime in the near future. Thanks for the conversation. I want to thank the show sponsors, HP. HP Engage Long Life Cycle Products provides the stability, safety, and security you need, plus flexibility and performance designed for today and tomorrow. As well, GenieMD, providing a modular, scalable, and customizable virtual care platform and clinical services to help providers extend care into the home, increasing access and quality while driving new revenue opportunities. If you missed part of today's episode, you can tune in at the same time, 11 a.m. or 7 p.m. Eastern throughout the week, and be sure to check out the program page on healthcarenowradio.com. And remember, connect or follow me on LinkedIn, Twitter, at Foley Tom, and follow the show's hashtag, The Virtual Ship. I'm Tom Foley. Until the next show.